We read Genesis 1, 1 and 2, but take that and then how does, how does this sound to you comparatively? Long ago there were two gods, Abzu and Tiamat. Abzu was the god of fresh water. Tiamat was the goddess of the salt water, marine water. Abzu and Tiamat married and produced a second generation of divine beings. Soon after that, Abzu was suffering from insomnia because their little deity kids were making too much noise. He just couldn't get any sleep. Every parent here can relate to that. Um, But unlike, I hope, every parent here, he wanted to kill these little noisy gods despite the protests of their mother, Tiamat. But before he managed to kill them, Ea, the god of wisdom and magic, put Abzu to sleep under a magic spell and killed him. Not to be outdone, Abzu's wife, Tiamat, plotted revenge on her husband's killer and those who aided in his murder. Her first move was to take a second husband named Kingu. Then she conceived and bore a whole bunch of little deity offspring and just raised up this whole army uh, of little gods to carry out her retaliation plans. At this point, Ea and his minions kind of began to get a little nervous and they appealed to the god Marduk for help against Tiamat. And he, uh, Marduk, he accepted the challenge on one condition, that if he was victorious in defeating Tiamat, they would make him the chief god above all the other gods. So the battle between Tiamat and Marduk happened and it ended in this blazing victory for Marduk. He captured Tiamat's followers, made them his slaves, and then he cut the corpse of Tiamat in half, creating the heavens with one half and the earth with the other half. Soon after, Marduk conceived another plan. He had Tiamat's second husband, Kingu, killed and arranged to make man out of his blood. So, according to this story, you have the universe, you have, you have man coming from this warring of gods, from the body of one god and the blood of another. That's an interesting story. That's a fascinating myth. And that's just one of many examples of the kinds of myths that were contemporary to the account of Genesis that we just read a few moments ago and that we're looking at right now. Uh, the, the, the Genesis account of the creation of the cosmos, of the, of the universe, the heavens and the earth, <coughs> and man. But th- this, is, this is an account that was present when Moses penned these words given to him by God. It's, a, it's the Babylonian creation myth called the uh, Enuma Elish. It was written to show how Marduk became the chief among all of the gods of Babylon. And it was, it was part of their life. It was part of their culture. Part of their worship. It was, it was liturgically recited over and over again to somehow manipulate uh, natural events and to cause things to work in, the fa- in their favor. And so they would recite this creation account of, of, of Tiamat and Marduk and all this, this story. They would, 
they would say this again in these kind of magical incantations to, to, to get the gods in their favor. That's the kind of stuff that surrounded the Israelites. I mean, they left Egypt where they had all of these mythologies and all these gods and goddesses in Egypt. and So they were just delivered from that culture. And now they're in the wilderness and they're surrounded by all these polytheistic, the many, worship of many gods and pantheistic where everything is God. Surrounded by these other cultures, these other nations. And they have all of these myths that are, that are, that are made up and these deity myths. And this is surrounding them. And so what they needed was not some new, um, individualized, Israelite myth. It's not what they needed. They didn't need their own story. Now that they're this new people. No, what they needed was the truth. What they needed was truth. They needed, they needed the one true God to reveal to them who He was and how things began. They needed to, to know their story. They needed mostly to know their God. Genesis is not myth. I mean, you read this account and you read these other myths that were again uh, common in that day and there's no similarity whatsoever. It bears no marks. The Genesis account bears no marks of ancient mythology whatsoever. I mean, any student of literature or expert in literature would, would attest to this. The Genesis account is unique in all the creation stories that were, again, contemporaries to it. All those creation myths circulating in Moses' day, they would speak not only of the creation of the world, but also the creation of the gods. These gods were created by unions, and so there's gods had these beginnings. The only account that speaks of one God existing eternally and, and the world being brought into being by His power alone, the only one is what we find here in Genesis. And so in the beginning again, God created the heavens and the earth. Period. It's crazy. Last week we, we just saw one verse. Thank you for reminding me, Patrick. And, and this week we have another verse. Um, so there's 1,533 verses in Genesis. I googled that. I did not go through and count them all. Um, 1,533 verses. So at this rate we'll finish Genesis, I figured, in mid-2048. That's if we take no breaks. Uh, we just keep right on plowing every week. So, no, that's not going to be our pace through the book of Genesis. There's, we're still doing an introduction today. We'll finish that up, and then we'll, we'll start moving through the text at a normal pace. A uh, quick review from last week, and, and most of you were here, but just, just because this is that introduction, it's intended to be one message, and it's spread out over two weeks. A couple things to say that we said last week. One, the book of Genesis is foundational to all Scripture. As we said, the, every, the seed plot, it's the seed plot for the entire Bible. You can't rightly understand the storyline of Scripture if you, if you don't understand the beginning. And so the, what, what is, is here in seed form in Genesis is, is what's going to make sense of everything else we see in Scripture. One of the <coughs> interesting things to note um, is how closely related the first and last books of our Bibles are. 
And so you, you compare Genesis alongside Revelation, and of course everything in between is, is tied together as well, but you just think of Genesis, you have the first heaven and the earth created. In Revelation, you have the new heaven and the new earth created. In Genesis, you have the, the first garden, this tree of life being guarded. In Revelation, you have this garden city and the tree of life is available to us. You have the first marriage in Genesis. You have the last marriage, the marriage of the Lamb in Revelation. You have Satan tempting Eve to sin in Genesis. You have Satan thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation. You have death entering the scene in Genesis. You have no more death in Revelation. Death is done. You have Babylon built in Genesis. You have Babylon destroyed in Revelation. You have the Redeemer promised in Genesis. You have the Redeemer reigning forever in Revelation. So so I just say none of that will make sense if we don't if this isn't here. I, I, I we I think we said something like it's not that the Bible is just incomplete without Genesis. If you just took Genesis out and we had sixty five books, it wouldn't just be incomplete. It would be it would not be understandable without Genesis. It's that foundational to all of Scripture. Also <laughs> we said Genesis isn't here just for our curiosity. It's not just interesting, something we kind of look at, you know, very removed with white gloves on our hands, and we think, wow, that's very fascinating how this, this kind of prim- primeval religion and how things worked and their perspective on God. No, this is here to show us God. This is our God. The, the God of Genesis is our God. He is unchanging. And so we behold Him here. And, and with, that in, with that in mind, we said there's, there's only one hero in the, in the book of Genesis, and that is God. We're going to see lots of people, and there's going to be the, the second half of uh, the second part of Genesis is a, kind of arranged by these patriarchs, these founding fathers of Israel. But it, it, this book is, is about God. And, and so, this is why it's so important to see the, the, in, the importance of context in studying any book of the Bible. And we said, Genesis isn't exempt from that. And so we can't just read into it our situation. We can't just come to it as, as kind of seeing it this collection of, of Bible stories and have these little moral principles and we're just going to... Uh, I know this is the way many of us grew up in Sunday school class and so we, we hear about these people and I'll be like Abraham or, or do this. And, and That's not the point. We don't, we don't come to it in that way. It's, not, it's also it's not intended to answer all of our questions about science and philosophy and those things. It's written to God's people, to Israel first, but again, we are, we are not disconnected from this. This is our story. But it's written to God's people to reveal their God and to increase their trust in Him alone. And that's why this is, has immediate import to us. This is what we need constantly. We need to know who our God is and we need to trust Him and Him alone. And so, from beginning to the end, the last thing I'll say, Genesis is the story of grace. It's relentless grace and that's why we're calling this ruin to redemption. That's the storyline of Genesis. That's the storyline of Scripture. All right, we, we said two just kind of general, we, we covered the first verse and these are the two statements we made. One, before there was creation, there was God. Before there was creation, there was God in the sense that when he says in the beginning God, that's not the beginning of God, that's the beginning of the universe. And so when the universe began, God already was. He's eternal 
He has no beginning. He has no end. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 92. So before creation was, we said God was existing in perfect glory. God was living in perfect community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God was planning our redemption. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we looked at other passages. So, so God already was before anything else was. He, God was before the beginning of the universe. But in the beginning, God did something. He, the text says, created the heavens and the earth. That's the second point. The whole universe was created by God. Everything was made by Him. God, and God gave the universe this definite beginning. The heavens and the earth were not, they did not exist, and then they were. What made the difference? What, what changed that? God. God created them. God created everything. And so, again, consider Moses' context and that first audience as God is giving these words to His people as they're wandering in the wilderness, surrounded by all these competing, these, these nations and all of, their, all of their gods and goddesses and whose God's better and whose God's stronger and which regional God's better. And, and so, God is telling His people through Moses, the, the Lord, I the Lord, am not just the God over Israel. I, I am, I'm not like those other pagan myths. He's not a, a national God. He's not a tribal God. He's not a regional God. No, He's not one of many warring deities who are duking it out trying to see who's supreme. No, He alone is Creator of everything. He is Lord of all. And, and, and so, and the other thing we said, everything that is had this definite God-created beginning. And also, God created the universe out of nothing. Ex nihilo, that Latin phrase. He, he used, He had no pre-existing materials. He just merely willed, or as we see, He spoke the whole universe into existence. We say, wow! By faith we understand, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God and that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He just he spoke and it and it was. There were there were the pagan mythologies in Moses' day, they, they all basically had one of two speculations about the nature of the world. This is kind of you could classify all of those pagan myths into one of these categories. Some taught that there was a time when there was just nothing. That, 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 and then something replaced the nothing. We'll come back to that. Others taught that the universe had always been there in some form or another. So those are the kind of the two predominant ones. Now, interestingly, those are the only two views present, the only two options in contrast to the Christian view even today. You probably can recognize this. So I just say, don't be overwhelmed or confused or intimidated by the whole issue of creation in our own context. I know we can be frozen. There, there are only three options on the market. There were in Moses' day, there, are, there is in our own day. And don't think that the Christian view has somehow been disproven by science. It has not. 
the, the one, let me just read, this is a quote from somebody else. The, the impression has gone abroad, not only that the Christian doctrine of creation has been disproved, but that scholars have agreed on an alternative. Neither of these assumptions is correct. There is no agreed alternative to the Christian position. Those which are affirmed are beset with enormous difficulties. The Christian doctrine, on the other hand, seems to have no particular difficulty of its own. It is supported by a great body of argument, philosophical and scientific, and this is the more important thing, and is confirmed by the whole process of special revelation in which God both asserts and describes Himself. So there's only three options on the market. There's the Christian view, just saying before, before creation, God alone existed. And He in His sovereignty is responsible for bringing everything that is into being. And so that's, that's what we understand Scripture say. There's a second view that you find today sometimes. The view that before creation, nothing existed. Before the universe was, nothing existed. Absolutely nothing. Not God, not matter, not mass, not energy, not uh, potential, not uh, protoplasm, not some primordial ooze. Nothing existed. And, and philosophers used to say uh, an expression, ex nihilo, out of nothing, ex nihilo nihil fit, which means out of nothing, nothing came. So that's, that's one understanding of, 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 of how things came into being. From, from nothing, nothing comes. Now I think it's fair to say that that's, that requires quite a bit of illogical faith to hold to this understanding. That's pretty hard to believe. The fact that something now exists drives us to the conclusion that therefore something must have always existed. Again, stay with me. We're, we're going to be back on the main road in just a second. So that's one view that's alternate to the Christian view. Third view is the view that before the creation of the universe as we know it, there, there is an impersonal something that has always existed. And so this is the most popular view that you find among scientists and philosophers and physicists today. So there was some protoplasm, some primary particle that, that in which there was this latent potential for everything that would be later realized in the universe. That, so something existed uh, before the universe as we know it uh, came into being. But here's the thing. Consider that. that the, the existence of an impersonal something for eternity is no less a mystery, no less of a stumbling block to the consistent skeptic than the existence of God Himself. If you reason that everything came from some primary particle of protoplasm, then doesn't that primary particle of protoplasm, doesn't that have in itself many of the characteristics of God? Minus personality, mind you. That something already possesses many of those characteristics of deity. It is eternal. It is self-existent. It is omnipotent and on and on. So the nature of the... And this is what you see, and this is my point. The nature of the universe itself is against this theory of origins. It's difficult. It's impossible, really, to believe that the complexity of the life that... the life forms in which we are so familiar, just human life the complexity of human life, not just physically, but the thoughts and the, and the soul of man, 
that the complexity of that is the result of just some impersonal, unprogrammed molecule and change, genetic change. The, the movement from the impersonal to the person is an impossible barrier. And, and, and the honest scientists and physicists will acknowledge that. So don't let anyone fool you into thinking that they've got it all figured out and that science is explaining it all. That's just not true. They have enormous problems. And I'd rather have my problems. So that's it. Explaining a, a biblical understanding of origins, it's not going to convince anyone. You realize that. We're, we're, we'll say more about this in a moment, but showing support from science, it, it, it can, and it can help us as believers, and so that we're not blindsided, but it's, it's not going to change the heart of a skeptic. Not Richard Dawkins or Bill Nye the science guy or your next door neighbor. I mean, it's not gonna, you're not going to be able to convince them of the existence of God and, and, and certainly of the, the biblical gospel by, by explaining evidence. That's not... The reason people reject God isn't a lack of evidence. It's willful unbelief. And that it comes to us as we're going to see. Genesis 3 will make this very clear. And, and, and you go to Romans 1 and many other passages that make this very clear. And the other thing I'd say, also, our God, the one true God, isn't discovered by people reflecting about the nature of things and sort of postulating Him and His existence. That's not how it happens. That, that's how the Egyptians did it. That's how the Babylonians did it. That's how the Philistines did it. But the God of Genesis is not found out by men, not found out by Moses somehow groping to figure out what God is like and postulating who He is. The God of Genesis, our God, He has revealed Himself to us. I know that sounds simple to say, but that is so important that we understand. The direction for what we know about God is from God to us, not us to God. And so God is self-revealed. What we know, what we believe about God is known and believed because He's chosen to reveal Himself to us. And beyond that, He's revealed Himself to us propositionally, in words. In, 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 and so God speaks to us, reveals Himself to us in words. Why Eric's taking Greek and Hebrew in seminary right now. Because words matter and grammar matters. And he's, he's given us <coughs> the Scriptures, this canon in the Bible, and He reveals Himself. It's not that men have simply projected words about Him, but it's that He's spoken to us in words. He's made revelation to us. He speaks to, to His people. He communicates in words. And those words begin... As we've already seen, and they continue with here, let's read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that brings us to the third point, which should have been last week's message, but we're getting to it today. The earth was the focal point of God's creation. The earth was the focal point of God's creation. So the second half of the prologue, the introduction to Genesis, brings us right down to planet Earth. There's this, and, and, and notice, a natural, a natural plain reading of verses 1 and 2 would indicate this just normal flow from verse 1 to verse 2. That said, 
And again, I don't want to go off on tangent here, but there are some scholars who want to see this large span of time between the, two first, the first two verses of Genesis. And the, the teaching is generally referred to as the gap theory. You may or may not have heard it referenced. It was popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible. So if you've got one of those laying around, you can, you can read about this. In, in a nutshell, the gap theory proposes that in the past, God did create this perfect, flawless heaven and earth, Genesis 1-1. So they say that happened. But at that time, the earth was inhabited by some animals and this kind of pre-Adamic race before humanity is created. There was this race of people. And during this time, there was this primeval rebellion that took place and thus sin entered into the world. And the earth was thrown into chaos, which you see in Genesis 1-2, that's formless and void and darkness. And, and so this chaotic place. And it's all because of of this rebellion that had already taken place. And the creation week then is about remaking this dark, scary, chaotic place into uh, making it whole again after that rebellion. Okay. Where do we see that? We don't. I mean, that's, that's just kind of postulating some, some theory, but that doesn't hold up, again, to the plain reading of these verses. Just the, the grammar in Hebrew. It doesn't make sense. You can't... You can't get that there. And it doesn't hold up to what the rest of the Scriptures affirm. If the gap theory was true, you'd have sin, judgment, and death before the fall. That's, that, just, that doesn't hold up. Eric's in Romans right now with the students, and we've been through Romans as a church. You just can't get there. This runs counter to, every, to all other clear biblical teaching, especially in the New Testament. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.2 For since by, man de- by a, m- a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And so, so don't, don't think you've got to see something there that does, it's not there. Mo- and Moses actually uses very particular uh, Hebrew structure that points to verse 2 basically being sort of background information after that statement of creation in verse 1. That's, that's what's going on. And again, what we'll notice, not just today, but as we walk through this, the, the, the perspective of Genesis is very geocentric. It's, it's earth. Earth is now our vantage point as we consider creation. It's not, it's not viewing creation from the perspective of heaven and God's perspective and and angelic perspective. It's viewing creation from earth. And which again is the focal point of creation according to what's been revealed to us. But someone said the earth is the stage on which the drama of history under God will be played. And so this is why it becomes in focus. And, and from that view, what is the earth seen as? It's uninhabitable after Genesis 1.1. It's uninhabitable. Verse 2 describes the condition of the earth prior to God's preparing it for mankind. The Hebrew of without form and void is very rhythmic. You may have even heard this. Tohu vabohu. Tohu vabohu. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. I had a friend of mine. Who, I, I have a friend of mine uh, from seminary. He has, a, he has a blog called Tohu vabohu. And he says it's a, it's a little subtitle. a blog without form or void. He's kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, describing his writing. 
Uh, Pastor Dow told me earlier this week he had a, they had then a cat that he named Tohu Vabohu, uh, which fits for a cat, I guess. Um, but Tohu Vabohu, without form and void, that, that's the very opposite of what the earth would be after the six days of creation, as we're going to see that. So next week we're going to start looking in, verse Genesis, in Genesis 1, verse 3, through, through the, really the whole chapter. We're going to take it in a big sweep. And we're going to see the earth. You're, yeah, you're saying, yeah, right. Uh, but we're going, to, we're going to do what we can. And the earth is going to be formed and filled. And so it's going to look very different from Genesis 1-2 by the end of those, that creation week. So what do we say? What is God doing here? This formless void earth. One, God will turn formlessness into order. That's what He's going to do. The earth is without form. It it simply means it's uninhabitable when he's saying it's formless. It's covering the earth, the text says here, is this, is this deep, this primeval ocean that just covers the surface of the earth. So mankind could not have survived since the earth is completely covered with water. That's the picture. So remember Job's very poetic language in Job 38. He's describing the greatness of God and all that He's done. And, and he talks about uh, that, that God established the earth and fixed its dimensions and stretched out a measuring line across it. So, Genesis 1-2, this is earth before God did that stuff. I realize he's using poetic language, but before God made the earth habitable for people, for life. So He will turn formlessness into order. Second, God will turn emptiness into fullness. He will turn emptiness into fullness. And the word void there, it just, it just, it, so we're saying formless means uninhabitable. Void would mean the earth is uninhabited. It's, it's empty. It's unoccupied. There's no humans. There's no animal life. There's no plant life. There's nothing. Uh, no other life forms at the, at the time of Genesis 1-2. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the stuff, but nothing was living there. And then third, God will turn darkness into light. He will turn darkness into light. So spreading over this whole uninhabitable earth, and Genesis 1-2 is this thick darkness. I mean, pitch black. And it serves to emphasize the emptiness, the tohu vabohu nature of this earth. Pitch darkness. We, it's, in, it's impenetrable to man. We, we, we can... We cannot function without, without light of some kind. But to God, darkness is transparent. Uh, we know this from Psalm 139.12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I mean, God sees everything. So, but, but the earth is covered. It's, it's, again, it's uninhabitable, it's uninhabited, and it's dark. So you have this unformed, unfilled, dark earth... But what? But God was there. God was there. Above this primeval, watery earth uh, floated this unutterable beauty. Look at the text again. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's a 
It's a very graphic word picture in Hebrew and even in our English language. But the, the, it comes, the, the, this word picture, it comes clear. The very last song of Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, there's this expression. He uses the same word to describe Deuteronomy 32.11. An eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. So you've probably seen a, a bird suspend itself kind of stationary by fluttering its wings and just kind of hovering in place. I, when we go to the beach or something like that, I know that we're not supposed to do this, but we do it anyway. We're terrible tourists. You know, you've got the goldfish crackers and the seagulls come in. You're tossing them up in the air and you know, you kind of let them, and they'll just come down and they'll kind of hover there waiting for you to throw them something. I mean, that, that's the picture I get. This is just kind of stationary, just kind of hovering, fluttering over, over, uh, over that uh, cracker. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy, that this is what the Lord did for Israel. It's like this mother bird just hovering over Israel, protecting her. This is what the Lord did over the tohu vabohu earth, a formless and void earth. The Holy Spirit, as, as it were, is like, like, a, like a nurturing bird hovering over the deeps, uh, the dark deeps in preparation for day one. And so in the midst of this empty, formless, dark place, the Spirit of God is already at work. He's, he's, he's the first mover. He takes the first action. No light, only darkness. No topography, no land, only water. No human, animal, plant life, only God. He's there in the beginning. Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and just ready for day one. One classic commentator on Genesis, Umberto Casuto, he says, just as the potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, he takes first of all a lump of clay and places it upon his wheel in order to mold it according to his wish. So the Creator first prepared for Himself the raw material. Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. Void, uh, formless, dark earth. He has the raw material though. With a view to giving it afterwards order and life. It is this terrestrial state that is called tohu and bohu. So tohu va bohu. Basically, that, that expression is basically going to form the outline for the rest of Genesis 1. So in, in days 1 to 3 of creation, God is going to deal with the formlessness of earth and He's going to give the earth form. He's going to make it habitable. And then in days 4 to 6, He's going to deal with the emptiness of creation. He's going to fill the earth with all kinds of plant and animal and human life. And so, this is, this is what's coming. And this is what we'll see next week. But I want you to remember... We said this again, we said last week, we said at the beginning of this, this message, that Moses isn't simply writing to sort of satisfy our curiosity and to, to give us all of these details. 76 words, we said, in the Hebrew, of the whole creation of the universe. Whole creation account, 76 words. So we don't have all of the information. But he, what he's writing for is because he has a theological purpose in mind. And it's this, it's to strengthen our faith in God alone. In God alone. As the, as, as the powerful creator, sustainer, deliverer, helper of His people. This is why He's written this. 
This is why he was revealed this about the very beginning. He didn't have to tell us, but this is why he told us. The surrounding nations, they had these ancient myths that explained the, 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 the origin of the universe and humanity, and we read one of those, the warring deities and all this kind of stuff. But God's revelation through Moses was, was that of one true God, the Lord, who alone created all things and is still in control of all creation. He has unrivaled power and authority. He he has unheard of grace to do what He's done. Unstoppable purposes. What He he commits to do, what He wills to do, He does. He just created the heavens and the earth. So He just does it. This is just an, he's revealed himself as this indescribable God. And just just to, to your life and what you're going through even today, your life may seem out of control right now, I don't know. If it doesn't now, you're going to have those times and it seems chaotic and you have these siren songs of the idols in your own heart and around you and they're calling out to you and they're whispering, whispering these sweet words into your ears and into your to your heart and inviting you to trust them for help and look to me, look to money, look to look to popularity, look to look to uh, stuff, look to the that next purchase uh, thing that's in your Amazon cart. That's going to make you happy. That's going to make your life comfortable. That's going to fill you with ease. Look to this vacation. That's what's going to do it. It's we have this calling out to us, calling out to us. I'll give you protection. I'll give you joy. I'll give you purpose. These idols, this is what Israel was dealing with. They're wandering the wilds. All the idols of these lands, these people and these gods, these people, maybe maybe that's where I can find joy. Maybe that's where I can find hope. Maybe that's where I can can, can find protection. We have the same voices calling out to us. And and you and I, like Israel in in Moses' day, we need to say, my trust is in the Lord alone. He is the maker of heaven and earth. This is why this is given to This is the theological purpose behind Genesis. This is the truth that we've got to just, we've got to constantly keep coming back to as we work through this book. It's, we're call, it's calling us to trust the Lord alone. And, and foundational to that is He alone made everything. He is the Lord of all. And then I want you to see the next word. So we're going to get to one more verse. We're going to tease it anyway. Verse 3, and we're going to end here. The very next words, and God's in this formless, void, dark world, dark earth, Spirit of God hovering, and the next words, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke. And when He spoke, light. Like a switch has been flipped on. Now there's no sun, there's no stars. We'll get to that. That's going to be part of uh, what's, what's coming. But there's light. Do you hear the echo of the Gospel there? In verse 3. And God's command for light in the midst of darkness. You, you see God setting the stage for this greater plan through those simple words right there in the beginning. 
I mean, the darkness of Genesis 1-2, it's not, I, I don't think there's any indication that this is some kind of sinful, evil darkness. That's not the point. But we know darkness did become this metaphor for sin and its consequences. And so, why, why did the Israelites continue to struggle over and over and over again to worship uh, creatures instead of the Creator? Why is this? Because their hearts are full of darkness. Unbelief. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and to every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil constantly. It's darkness. Humanity hasn't changed in that regard. Paul's description of human life apart from God, it still fits. They are, Ephesians 4.18, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. And so just as in the beginning God commanded light to shine in the midst of utter darkness, He alone has shown the light of His Son, Jesus, into our darkened hearts. Scripture makes this very clear. Look at how Paul gives the application of this truth to our dark hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis 1, 3 has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What a powerful reality, brothers and sisters. I mean, Genesis 1-3 is the seed of that truth. It's, it, it comes into full bloom there. Just as God spoke and the universe was created, just as into utter darkness God said, Light! And there was light, so God has caused us to be born again by shining the light of the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ into our hearts. He's done it. Salvation, therefore, is of the Lord. This creation is of the Lord. Paul's going to seize that and say, salvation is of the Lord. The world wasn't created by this gradual makeover and anything like that. The world was made out of nothing. Light was made out of nothing. We are not saved by this long remodeling process. A few upgrades here and there, and, 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 and eventually we kind, of, we, kind of, we kind of, over time, just fade into... Uh, this state of salvation. No, we were saved by sovereign, powerful, invasive grace. God said, light, and there was light in our hearts. Well, in the book of Revelation, we, again, we, let's go from beginning to end here. John sees this incredible scene um, in, around the throne of God. John's immediately transported into the very presence of God Himself. And we see this account in Revelation 4. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Revelation 4, 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. It's a glorious scene, isn't it? And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, 
Listen to this. Worthy are You. Worthy are You alone, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why is He worthy? For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. He is Creator, therefore He is worthy of praise. This is, this, is what, this is what God so wanted His people to get in the wilderness. This is what He wants us to get now. This is what He wants us to get forever. For all eternity. The same God, listen, the same God who created out of nothing the universe is also our gracious Redeemer. And since He's powerful enough to bring the heavens and the earth into existence out of nothing through just speaking a word, He is also able to bring about redemption from the ruins of sin for those who place their faith in Him. And if you're here today and that describes you and your life is in ruins because of sin and that's not because you're some exception, that's true for every single one of us apart from Christ. But if you're here today and and that's you, the same God who, who revealed Himself that is this one who said light, and that with light He can shine the light into your heart today. You trust Him, and you can know salvation. You can you can have redemption that blossoms out of the ruins that sin has brought in your life. And so I, I beg you, plead with you to trust Him today. Come talk with one of us. Talk to somebody sitting around you if you want to. If you if you would do that today. But again, Genesis, it's about that. It's about ruin to redemption. All God's doing. Mankind's sin. Our, we do a part. We do the sinning part. But, but even in this perfect, idyllic environment, mankind sins, and yet God intervenes and He brings redemption to cover over those sins. So in the beginning, God. And God is all that... God, God will always be. In the end, God will be. Revelation 4.8. Beginning to end is God. It's His worth. It's, He's the one. Genesis is about God. Genesis is about His grace. And I pray, brothers and sisters, and I want you to pray for us as we walk through this, this, this book together. And we're going to start walking through this book next week. I promise. But I pray that His grace, this God of Genesis who is our God, this grace that we see in Genesis is the grace we know that this grace will abound to you and me as we study this book of beginnings together in the coming weeks. I pray that it will abound more and more. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this clear uh, message of Your greatness and Your grace. And I do pray that. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here. We constantly need to, to be reminded of this. This is why You've given us uh, why you've called us to gather even every, every Lord's Day, why you've called us to remember at the table Christ, it's because we constantly can forget um, the, the, the sufficiency of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would, as we walk through these verses and chapters each week, that you would call us back and that our confidence, our trust, would not be divided, but it would be in you and you alone. And I pray for those that are here, maybe just listening in and skeptical about these things and thinks maybe even kind of sound strange. And 
talking about origins and all of these things. But I pray, Father, that you would work in, in their hearts by your Spirit, God, to shine light into their hearts, that they would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, and that some will be brought from darkness to light, as you say, light. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.